to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Now, chapter 43 is, uh, in many ways, a new beginning in Isaiah. Somebody has called it a new oracle of Isaiah's. Some people think that a great deal of Isaiah is made up of sermons which he actually preached and that this is such a new beginning in Isaiah's exposition of God's grace and mercy to Israel in his purpose to deliver them out of Babylon. And the way it begins with this phrase, but now, at the beginning of verse 1, is a feature of these chapters. And it usually introduces the idea that the love of God, though continually rebuffed by his people, continually returns to take the initiative to be gracious to them and to bring them salvation. You see the same phrase at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 44, but now, in chapter 49, verse 5, it frequently comes, and now, and that I think is how it is in 49, 5, and now, says the Lord, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, And then he goes on to describe his saving purpose. And you get the same in chapter 52, verse 5. The the whole context of this but now is really a parallel in the Old Testament to that great statement in the epistle to the Ephesians when Paul has described what we once were, remember what you were, he says, in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And then in verse 13, you get these two great words on which I think Martin Lloyd-Jones preached for 20 Sundays. Two words, 20 Sundays. You realize how lightly you get off in St. George's Tron? But now, he said, here is what we once were, but now. And God's great pronouncement that whereas this is what we were, this is what we deserve from God, but now God is coming in grace and salvation. Now you would remember that at the end of chapter 42, uh, the emphasis had been upon God's judgment on Israel. He is emphasizing to them that the judgment was not something that came by accident, or a combination of circumstances. They were not in Babylon as Isaiah speaks to them now in his own age, looking forward into the day when they are going to be in Babylon as prisoners and exiles. He says, you will not be in Babylon simply because you have been taken there or because some foreign king has been taken there, but because I have delivered you into their hand. So he says, verse 24 of chapter 42, Who handed over Jacob to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord? And there is a note of judgment that comes right to the end 
of uh, chapter 42. The anger of God enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. And that is the story of Israel, of course, that God came in discipline and chastisement and judgment, and yet they did not understand what he was saying. He came in love and mercy and compassion and long-suffering and tenderness towards them. He wooed them, yet they rebuffed him. And so he has been speaking at the end of chapter 2 about the judgment that inevitably comes upon such a people. But even then, you notice, at the beginning of chapter 43, he begins, but now... This is what the Lord says even to such a people. And he is going to speak to them about his redemption. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. There is the amazing persistence of God's mercy to his people. Now it's always true that judgment, as we've been finding as we've gone through Isaiah, judgment is always God's strange work. It is in mercy that the Lord delights. Judgment is his strange work. And he reluctantly brings judgment upon his people. He delights in bringing mercy upon them. And now we're going to be reading about how God lavishes his love and salvation upon his people. And in these first 13 verses, there are three things that Isaiah is concentrating our attention upon. First of all, what the Lord has done for his people. I'll tell you what these three things are in case I don't get through them all evening, but there, first of all, what God has done for his people. The second, what the Lord is to his people. And the third, what the Lord wants from his people. What the Lord has done for his people. Now, there are in these verses from one to seven, at least six things that God has done for his people and they are indeed the essential elements of what God has done for his people supremely in Jesus Christ, even from the very beginning when he says, He who created you, O Jacob, because it is in Jesus Christ supremely that we are to understand the creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And it is in Jesus Christ that creation finds its truest meaning. And so Isaiah says, but now this is what the Lord says. And the very first thing that he says the Lord has done for his people is he has created them. That just means he has brought them into being and given them life. Just as surely as God created the first man and woman, so he created Israel 
as his people in the Old Testament and the church as his people in the New Testament, so that we are the creation of God. And when he speaks to his people, he says to them, He who created you, O Jacob, is the Lord. So there is the first thing that God has done for his people. He's not speaking primarily here about our physical creation. He is speaking about that sense in which God is the creator of a people for his own glory. And supremely that finds its expression in the church of God in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Now, the second thing that God has done for his people is he has formed them. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, and when the two names are brought together like this, he is embracing the whole company of God's people. He has created you, and he has formed you. And the word formed has a slightly different emphasis or nuance. It is the difference, I think, between bringing a child into the world, that's when the child receives life, and bringing a child up, as we say, training the child, forming the child's life, by our example and by our prayers and by our teaching and so on. Now, God is speaking here to them as a father. I have brought you into being. That's created you. And I have formed you, he says. It is as though you created a piece of wood, if it were possible to do that. And then formed and fashioned and shaped it to what you planned it to be. The relation between creation and formation is the relation between the creation and providence. And what God is saying to his people is that he was not finished when he created them. Any more than God is finished when he draws us to himself as his people and calls us by his name, he has just begun what he intends to do in us, and that is to form us. Now, that's the clue to everything that God is setting about doing all down through history for the people of Israel. And all through our lives as God's people today, he is forming us. And you will notice that verse 7 gives us the clue as to what lies behind both creation and providence. At the end of this section, he repeats the ideas of creation and forming. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, behind both creation and providence, there is this goal that God has in view. And that is that he has created us and is shaping us for his glory. There is nothing beyond that for the child of God. Now this is why, this is the reason 
why God pursued his people. People might well have asked, why is it that God is taking so much trouble over his people? Why doesn't he just abandon them in the wilderness? Why doesn't he just leave them in Babylon? Why does he persist? Why does he come back again and again? And the ultimate answer and the only satisfactory answer is because he has an undying zeal for his own glory. That's what God's great aim is. That's what his passion is. And he longs that his people may display it. So he pursues them into the land of Egypt. He pursues them into the land of Babylon. He pursues them through the wilderness so that he might have a reflection of his glory in his people. And that's an explanation of many of the providences in our own lives, of course. Some of them greatly mysterious. That God is pursuing his glory in our lives. And he is the God who has created you and formed you for his glory. Third thing, notice he redeemed them. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Now that, of course, immediately would have spoken to God's people in the Old Testament of the Exodus. It was a word which was inextricably tied up with the redemption out of the bondage of Egypt. It was the thing to which God constantly kept pointing them back. I am the God of your fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with my right hand and a strong arm. He is a God of redemption, you see. And when he sees his people in bondage, he comes to deliver them. He sets them free. Now he says, this is the kind of God I am. I have done it. In Egypt, and now he is prophesying again that this is precisely what he is going to do in Babylon. But neither Egypt nor Babylon exhaust the meaning of this word, as you will realize. Because God the Redeemer has something infinitely greater to do than he did in the exodus out of Egypt or the return from the exile from Babylon. And that is to deliver his people internally from the bondage of their sin. And that's why we lead on to the suffering servant of Jehovah whose purpose is to do precisely that. He is the one who is going to be the Redeemer par excellence. Because he will deliver not out of the hands of Pharaoh merely, nor out of the bondage of Babylon merely. He will deliver out of the thraldom of Satan. He will break the chains that bind us so that we are delivered out of Satan's hands. Now, the glorious thing, I don't know if you remember, in the Mount of Transfiguration, is that when Moses and Elijah are speaking together with the Lord Jesus Christ, do you remember what it is that they speak to him about? 
They speak to him about his coming death, but the form in which they speak of it is this. They speak to him about his coming exodus. That's the word, precisely that. If you read it exactly as it's written in the New Testament, in Luke 9, it would be, they conversed with him about his exodus that he was to accomplish. Now that is the fulfillment of everything that the exodus spoke of. Now, that's a very significant thing. And it's hinted about here, in fact, in uh, the nature of the ransom that God is going to give. Because you'll know redemption required a ransom price to be paid. That was the whole point of redemption. There was a price to be paid in order that people might be redeemed. And do you notice how he speaks about this in verse 3? I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom. Cush and Seba, other countries, in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Now that's one of Isaiah's intimations, that there is going to be the offering up of something infinitely costly in order to procure the release of his people from their bondage. And this is God the Redeemer already casting light upon what he is going to do in that costly offering up of his only Son. And in chapter 53 you begin to get the reality of that expounded to us. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. The chastisement of his peace, of our peace, was laid upon him. With his stripes we are healed. I will give people in exchange for you, God is saying. He redeems them. He calls them by name, fourthly, Again in verse 1, I have summoned you, the NIV translates it. It's really just the usual word in the, New, in the Old Testament for God calling his people. Uh, and here he says, I have summoned you by name, you are mine. Now this, of course, is how God not only relates to Egypt. Do you thought about this? and relates to his people both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It is how God relates to his own Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He has called him. Do you remember in Matthew 2 when Joseph and Mary are bringing Jesus out of Egypt that Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was written. I have called my son out of Egypt. So the one who supremely is the called one of God is the Lord Jesus. And in him we are called by the Father. We are then created, we are formed, we are redeemed, we are 
called or summoned. And you will notice the other three things, two things. He not only does that, he also loves his people. Verse 4, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you. Now that is the love that lies behind redemption. And it's the undeserved love and grace of God of which he speaks in Deuteronomy. You remember that famous passage in Deuteronomy 7 where God says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So Isaiah is reminding them he is not only the God who created them and formed them and redeemed them and called them, he is the God who loved them. Sixthly, he is the God who adopted them. In verse 6, do you notice this indication of the New Testament doctrine of adoption? Have you ever thought that we get this doctrine here in the Old Testament People so often imagine that these are merely New Testament doctrines. But notice what God is saying in verse 6. I will say to the north, give them up. That is, he is speaking now about the ingathering of a wider people. Not only of the people of Israel, but of the Gentiles also. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now here is how God relates to his people, you see. Not only, as I say, he is not the tribal God of Israel and Judah. He is the God of the whole earth. And so he has a purpose to reach out and bless with the spirit of adoption. His people who are gathered from north and south and from the ends of the earth. Bring my sons from afar. He has adopted them into his family. And do you notice he has called them by his name. That's what God has done for his people. Let me just run through with you what God is to his people. This is really a passage that you need to meditate upon and allow to soak into your heart at home. But let me just point out to you what God is to his people. That's what God has done. He has created, he has formed, he has redeemed, he has called, he has... um, loved and he has adopted them. Now the second thing, what God is to his people. You notice the first thing Isaiah tells us he is, he is a deliverer. For example, towards the end of verse 1, he is a deliverer from fear. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Again at the beginning of verse 5, do not be afraid for I am with you. And God, who is our Redeemer 
and has delivered us out of bondage, delivers us daily from our fears and from our enemies. And this is his great characteristic to his people. He is a deliverer. Secondly, he is an owner or proprietor or Lord. Notice the conclusion that comes from the truths that God has created and formed and redeemed and called us by his name. You are mine, he says. Now that's how God relates to his people. Do you see in the second place? He delivers them from all their fears because he is the redeemer. He has overwhelmed their greatest enemies. So he has delivered them day by day from their fears. But he is also the proprietor of their lives. He is the Lord who has rights over every area of their life. You are mine, he says. You belong to me. Now, if that were for no other reason true, it would be true because he is a redeemer. I have purchased you. Now, Paul uses that argument, doesn't he? He says, to whom do you belong? He says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit, which belong to him. And What God is to his people is primarily an owner, a proprietor, a lord. So the language that says, it's my own life, isn't it? Is never language that should be found on the lips of the child of God. Because the answer is, no, it is not. It is not my own life. My life, my time, my energies, my gifts... My possessions, none of them are my own. You are mine, saith the Lord. I was speaking to a student at Wheaton College uh, the week before last. And he was telling me uh, about his plans for the future. And he said, of course, so much of what I'm thinking has been changed recently. That was in recent times before I was there. He said, so much of my thinking has been changed because he said, God has been teaching me that I do not belong to myself. He said, you know, this has created the greatest revolution in my life. That I do not belong to myself. He had heard God saying to him. He had felt God's hand upon him saying, You are mine, says the Lord. Now that solves a whole lot of spiritual problems for many people, you know. You are mine, not your own, but mine. So he is a deliverer. He is an owner. You notice... Thirdly, in verse 2, he is a companion. Oh, that to the child of God becomes increasingly the sweetest thing in the whole of Christian experience. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now, the waters, you will notice, they, they, they 
picture is of the water and the fire, which were two pictures in the Old Testament of the two great threats that um, people would experience. The water, you'll remember, in the flood was this terrible threat of judgment and danger and death. Fire was the same sort of thing. It consumed people. So the two great things that they feared in the ancient world were fire and water. Not dissimilar, probably. Today, the most fearsome thing in the world is to find that you are in a flood that increasingly uh, rises, or when you are in a fire from which there appears to be no escape. But he says, when you are in these situations, notice it, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? Because I will be with you. Now, there is little doubt that there is... uh, Casting back of the mind to the Red Sea there, wouldn't you think? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Here is God the Redeemer. Now, here they were coming to the Red Sea. You will remember the plight that Israel was in. The Egyptians behind them, the Red Sea in front of them. What were they to do? Ah, well, the Lord says, I will be with you. What does that mean? It means that the Red Sea opened up in front of them. And they went over as on dry land because the Lord was with them. And he is a companion protector to his people. You remember how Daniel uh, in his day experienced this and his friends knew what it was to go into the fiery furnace and find that the flames did not touch them. Now why was that? Why did the flames not touch them? Well, you know why it was. It was not because they were wearing asbestos suits. It was because there was in the fiery furnace the form of a form who was like unto the Son of God. Now that is the secret, you see. He is the complete. Companion God to his people, I will be with you. And he reinforces this by saying to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's the comfort that God gives to his people all through. It's the comfort the godly want when Moses says to God, when he is about to go into some new venture, if you're presence does not go with us, carry us not up hence. The only thing he wanted was the presence of the Lord. The felt presence of the Lord. But there are some times when you may not feel that presence and you need to say to yourself, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that to the child of God is all that matters. He is a deliverer. He is an owner. He is a companion protector. He is a savior. Verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. And finally, he is a father. 
In verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back, bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name. That's what the Lord is to his people. Finally, here's what the Lord wants from his people From verse 8, he picks up the idea that we've already come across in chapter 42, verse 18, about those who are blind and those who are deaf. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the people assemble. Now, God is again exercising uh, one of these um, occasions when as we frequently read in Isaiah, there is something like a court scene. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say it is true. Now, God is emphasizing his uniqueness as the God of history who has done for his people what no other will do. And he turns to them and says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. There is no possibility of other witness to any other God. These false gods, no witnesses can testify to them because they are untrue. But he says in verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. So what the Lord wants from his people, first of all, is witness. You are my witnesses. And that witness is the witness of a life that makes other people say it is true. What God has said is true. The second thing that God wants of his people is not only witness but service. You are my servant whom I have chosen. The third thing that God wants is that they might know him so that you may know me. The fourth thing God wants is that they might trust him. How often we have come across that in Isaiah. Oh, how readily they trusted other powers, other gods, other influences. He says, you are my witnesses and my servant whom I've chosen so that you may know me and trust me. And the last thing is understanding. And understand that I am he. Now you see, he is emphasizing that he is the true and the only God. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Here is the exclusiveness of God. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. 
but he wants them to be witnesses and servants, those who know him, those who trust him, those who understand that he is the Lord. Now, if you ponder that, you will see that these are exactly the roles that the Lord Jesus Christ occupied. He is the perfect witness to the Father in his truth and grace. He is the servant supremely who has taken the form of a servant at the Father's bidding. He is the one who knows the Father. O righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I have known you. He is the one whose trust and confidence was in the Father and who understood the Father's will and the Father's purpose. And it is this that the Lord wants above everything else, that we might emulate the Lord Jesus in our witness, our service, our knowledge of God, our trust in him, and in our understanding of who he is. Above all, let me finish with this. What the Lord wants from his people is emphasized in verses 11, 12, and 13, where he is insisting that he is the only God, there is none beside him, From the beginning of time, from ancient days, I am he, he says. No one can deliver out of my hand. That is, there is no one who is as strong as the Lord is. He says, when I act, who can reverse it? Nobody is the answer. And he says, I am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no Savior. Now, what's the implication of that for his people? Well, the implication of it is that what the Lord wants from his people above everything else is an exclusive attachment to his person, an exclusive devotion to his purpose, and an exclusive obedience to his will. That's what it means when we say, The Lord says, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. That means an exclusive attachment to his person and an exclusive devotion to his purpose and an exclusive obedience to his will. That's what the Lord wants from his people. What the Lord has done for his people, what the Lord is to his people, what the Lord wants for his people. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601.
or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.